Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. It took a while for me to come back to, what do I really want to do with this moment? Like, what do I really want for myself and for the community that I live in. And it is to straighten out the line in between where money exists and who doesn't have it. This is an infinity dollar problem because the net effect of taking somebody who is a net consumer of tax dollars, equipping them with a skill that creates them a net producer of tax dollars, there is no end to the economic benefit of that. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about addressing long-standing economic inequities. Jonathan, as you know, we end every show with a discussion on great books and music that inspire our guests. Well, today I thought I'd shake things up a little bit and start with a quick mention of a cool book that I'm reading right now because there's a line toward the beginning that I really think speaks about the attitude of our guests today. The book is the latest by one of my favorite science fiction writers and Hugo Award winner, N.K. Jemisin, titled The City We Became. In it, she writes how people living in cities are catalysts, whether of strength or destruction. Which brings us into our intro of Irma Alguin Jr. and Jake Sobral, the co-founders and co-CEOs of the company you work with, Jonathan, Bitwise Industries. And as you well know, Irma and Jake and Bitwise are definitely catalytic and making cities much, much stronger. With a truly innovative combination, Bitwise fuels the growth of tech economies in underestimated cities, powered by underestimated talent. The company achieves this through workforce development, enterprise tech services, and placemaking in underinvested areas. Did I get that about right, Jonathan? Yes, you did, Christopher. And we'll let Irma and Jake expand on that in a little bit. 
But before we get to that, I wanted to hear from you. What initially attracted you to joining the Bitwise team? Admittedly, when I first heard about Bitwise, I was skeptical. I flat out did not believe what I had heard. So I started doing some digging and quickly discovered that they were doing the thing. I mean, they figured out an alchemic-like blend of diverse capital, support services, customary corporate tech procurement, and placemaking to realize transformative impact. Not a general impact, but with underestimated humans. And no doubt, I love Jake and Irma's stories too. We share bottom-up lived experience, and that ethic animates the work Bitwise does. Here's Irma. My family are uh, farm laborers, family farm laborers, immigrants from South Texas and Mexico, arrived here following the crops. And this is the place I grew up in, and that's what my family did. And as the story goes, I sort of accidentally went to college. This is was not supposed to be part of my life story, and but did that and landed myself in the technology industry entirely by accident. There isn't one piece of it that was part of a big plan that I had to one day be a computer engineer, but uh, ended up in that spot. In hindsight, it looks really obvious because you so much of it flowed from our lived experience of having, uh, by virtue of Irma's direct lived experience, by virtue of my father's lived experience, seen what happens when somebody coming from a story of poverty or exclusion gets access to opportunity and technology, the generational power that that has. And that's why we do this podcast, Jonathan change the systems and show ways to access opportunity, technology, and generational wealth and power. That's right. Jake and Irma found success early in their careers. Irma in IT and Jake is a lawyer. And when they connected to Foreign Bitwise in 2013, it was all about lifting up the community in Fresno by pulling down to the community some of the best opportunities of the tech economy. Day one was about friends and neighbors, right? These are people that you know you went to high school with. Maybe you had a job with at Target. You connected with over you know, coffee by accident, those types of things. And, and you wanted to provide access that we had found, each of us individually in our lives, had found in this industry that could change the trajectory of your life and by extension, your community and family. And we wanted to, to see what we could do to provide that access to other people, but they were just our friends and neighbors. This, it wasn't some, you know, people group that we can now identify in our marketing material, although that is also true. But day one, they were just, you know, homies. I think, you know, that parlays into the, the note about a holistic or ecosystem approach it was not born of a, hey, you know, in my Stanford MBA class, I learned uh, this about economic ecosystems. It was born of the reality that, you know, it, it, we say sometimes in Manhattan, if somebody starts a, you know, a great technology company, you know, on the second floor of a building, somebody's going to definitely open a sandwich shop and a, and a cocktail bar on the first floor. That That's a natural ecosystem forming up, driven by different parties. That's not true in Fresno or in Toledo or in Buffalo. Uh, what happens in those places is the one good thing 
sits in the wilderness, usually withers and dies. And so what we said is, well, what if we started all three critical things at once so that nobody got hungry and left at lunch, right? Uh, Because he didn't have the sandwich shop. But instead, thinking about that bridge into the technology industry, we can teach you what you need to enter. We can then connect you to the places that need to hire you. And we can give you a roof under which to do this in supportive and collaborative community. Now, now we keep people from uh, uh, nine to five or whatever it may be. Now we've plugged all the essential holes and you know, have enough oxygen to do something really interesting. Um, and so that's how the, the ecosystem formed up. And then over time, we were able to sort, sort of chip away at that and make it more efficient and better. But it was really, as Irma was saying, a response to the reality around us. And, you know, we also have sandwiches now. (laughs) (laughs) And had resources to even make and buy sandwiches as well. Uh, What you all are describing, I have a little bit of advantage over Christopher in this conversation. I'm immersed in the bitwise way. It has crystallized into a mission to build tech economies in underestimated places fueled with underestimated talent. And I'm sharing that last part with you because I've added that tagline in my presentations. I know it's not approved by corporate, but I want my (laughs) CEOs to know that's how I talk about the company. I think it plays. All right. All right. (laughs) With that mission, unique mission, how do you all blend a business model made up of so many different parts into a cohesive unit that's able to actually meet that mission. And and when you answer that question, it would be really helpful because we really haven't spelled out each of the component parts to really be able to help walk us through the model. And if you could illustrate it with a story or two, that'd be awesome. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, so taking us up on the model, the the, the model is uh, um, really functions primarily in two parts. Uh, So from a business standpoint, we teach individuals the skills they need to access opportunity in tech. So examples of that would be Salesforce and web development. That's taught primarily through apprenticeship. And we are sourcing students from programs that are already serving the historically excluded uh, and under-resourced. So programs serving veterans, the formerly incarcerated, single mothers, recent immigrants. And we're saying to them, this opportunity is available for you. And there is this unique track into this. That side of the business, we're generating revenue because government and corporations uh, and large foundations have dollars that are budgeted to train these populations of people in the places that we're operating. That is the training side of the business. The second side of the business is our technology solutions delivery, where we build primarily in Salesforce, DocuSign, and web development uh, technology solutions for customers in the public and private sector. And we're building things like during the pandemic, we built a platform adopted by 15 states called Onward US designed to help keep people get back to work. It was built on Salesforce uh, and is now being used in 15 states as a resource for the unemployed and underemployed. But we do that as a fee-for-service work uh, for customers all over the country and world. The secret sauce in there is that while Deloitte and Accenture and Microsoft all say we can't find talent, 
we, we just can't find people fast enough to keep up with demand. We have been investing in a pipeline of talent by virtue of our workforce training programs that others will not and do not for the last decade. Um, and so we have access to talent that helps us scale. We center this work in what we call underestimated cities by building inspiring tech venues. So that's 10 cities now across the country where we provide supportive amenities alongside the space that generate revenue as well. I think the whole story arc maybe is best lived out in how Irma and I spent our Sunday night. A gentleman named Floyd Munoz came to us, referred by another team member who is now, you know, not to bury the lead, his wife, um, uh, came through our workforce training programs after uh, having spent most of his life incarcerated, benefited from those programs, says, I not only write can, I want to participate here, want to earn a job at Bitwise, I'd like to spend my time uh, going back and communicating to others that come from my story and stories like it, that this is real. So it's not it's not Jake, the University of North Carolina graduate, the attorney that says, hey, here's this interesting ecosystem opportunity for you. But it's Floyd that says, this is a pathway to a real paycheck for people like us. The net effect of that is as we stood there uh, on Friday night at this, uh, I'm sorry, Saturday night, Sunday night at this wedding, I think there are eight groomsmen. Six of them, I believe, uh, had come through the workforce training program from stories like uh, Floyd's. Not only were all of them standing there in that wedding, not only do all of them have jobs in tech, not only do all of them did all of them just spend $300 on a tux and not blink, but they are each other's supportive community. And that is the whole story arc lived out, I think, uh, in one really acute moment that was really, really fun to see here in Fresno. So much of the national, if not global, equity discussion is around fairness. Of course it is. But equity, as we all know, also means ownership. And those six or seven individuals, just in your last example, can we say they now have an ownership interest in the Fresno economy, they now own appreciating assets called tech skills, which enable them to own fixed assets, houses, cars, you know, cars, not fixed asset, but land and other things as well, that can translate into the kind of generational wealth creation that uh, most of us would like to see. Is that a reasonable uh, conclusion? Well, and a couple of own Bitwise stock that makes them millionaires. <laughs> so the, 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 I'd, I'd say so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's equity in a, in a different way, but nonetheless, equity. That's right. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sherm. Our partners at Sherm, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. 
And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at SHRM.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to Moving the Needle. So Irma, I know that one of the models is around this idea of, as you guys have built plank by plank in the context of Fresno and then taking those lessons learned and applying them to other markets. I've had a chance to do some work in El Paso, Texas as well. I know that's one of your new cities that you guys have just announced. Help us understand when you guys engage with a new city and you know Jonathan goes out and knocks some heads together and gets people psyched up about what Bitwise is all about. What is the value proposition? What do you look for in cities that you're trying to move into? What was it about El Paso, for example, that really got you guys excited? What are the what are the key ingredients to really make one of these cities work as a you know? Oh, John, Jonathan is going to have the best possible answer to this, <laughs> but I'll give you the second best answer to this. And there are two ways to think about our expansion effort. When we think about new places, there's the spreadsheet answer, which is a list of attributes. Of, of a place that include things like per capita income and population density and a uh, number of, of folks in that location who are under the age of 30 and on and on, right? The socio-demographics of a place. But what it really comes down to when we commit to a place, because it is a commitment, and what we have to keep in mind at this is that this is not work that's going to be accomplished in a couple of weekends. This is work that we are going to be doing for years in that place is do we fall in love with the people there and do we think our model can impact them in a positive way? That is really the heart of our decision to expand to a new place. Good, because let's be really, really frank. Sometimes we go to a place and there's so much resistance there, whether it's political or the moneyed class or even the folks who we are most eager in serving who say, you know what, we don't need one of what you have. We have our own thing. That does happen sometimes. So when we go and we're evaluating a new spot, do we find a warm welcome? Are we excited about working with these people for years and years? And can we commit to that on a go-forward basis to have the maximum level of impact on folks who maybe didn't see this for themselves at all? That's really what we're what we're looking for. And to build on that real quick, who are the key stakeholders? We So, I mean, we, we definitely have levels of people, if you want to think of them as maybe not strata so much as categories. You know, you've got your political class, and then you've got your business owners and entrepreneurial class, and then you've got... But really, the stakeholders are going to come down to the people whose lives are going to be affected by the work. And those are the folks who are coming from restaurant, retail, factory, those farm labor works... That is the set of people who are going to eventually tell the story themselves um, are the ones that we need to hear from the most. What is troubling about that, and Jonathan and I actually have talked about this quite a bit, is that those are the same folks who don't really have the power to say yes today, right? And so how do we balance that as a bitwise corporate entity for profit when the folks on the ground, the folks who are going to be impacted are saying yes, and maybe the moneyed class or the political class is saying uh, maybe, you know, we convince us to care about this. That's the actual hard work is to try to balance the two different types of stakeholders that 
we need to be paying attention to. You know, Christopher, in some of the work we've done in our past has been around narrative building. Narrative building is soft, it's squishy, it's non-empirical, but my gosh, it matters. And that complete absence of narrative connecting underestimated talent to the best opportunities in the economy, overwhelmingly in the tech sector, really is a barrier to be navigated and overcome. It's a real thing. And Bitwise is a great example of deploying real people to engage underestimated, disconnected communities to build that narrative and demand for accessing the best opportunities. Uh, It's an extraordinary model that is fueled by an alchemic blend of resources. Jake and Irma, how did you guys figure out that blend? You got government, equity, debt, et cetera, et cetera. All of these forms of capital are blended together like a medieval wizard, right? Alchemy, let's go back to old English class, right? But really, I'm, I'm not sure they figured it out, how to turn these base metals into precious metals, but you guys did. How to blend sources that are almost never connected to serve this population. What's that story? The trick is to be really poor. Um, uh, <laughs> that's not that's so real. I mean, Bitwise is a growth staged venture backed technology company, which will mean something to you know a grand total of three people on the planet. And so that means though that it's taken on venture capital, which means it's taken on the the very fanciest form of early stage capital. And I I will always remember when Irma and I first set out to raise venture capital, which was about five or six years into the business. We were given all these these words of wisdom around, well, you don't want too many investors and you you don't want investors of this sort or that sort. Uh, You don't want investors that don't know your sector or that have invested in a competitor. And all that felt and still feels like accurate advice. But it also feels like somebody telling me, you know, which sort of Rolls Royce you want. And it's like, well, I don't have a Rolls Royce. <laughs> I'm never going to have a Rolls Royce. Uh, I don't need to spend a lot of time, you know, you know, arguing over which kind is the best. And so the, the uh, flip side of that is we really only wound up with one rule, and that's that we're going to try our best to only take money from good human beings. After that, we would take anything we get our hands on. And what that meant, that that manifests itself, yes, on the who's the investor profile, but also manifests itself on, well, hey, we heard from a pal or at a conference that government spends money in this way. Let's figure out how to get that. And we, then we heard, oh, philanthropy spends money on this thing. Let's figure out how to get that. And then corporations want to buy it in this way. Let's figure out how to get that money and on and on and on. And so we built this capital stack. And that's sort of like from the ground up how we got there. From the, 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 the bottom down, the, the world looks at this idea of converting individuals living in poverty to tech workers and says they tend to like price it, right? Okay, so, so that, that we think, you know, let's say that, that, that we're willing to spend $100 million on that. Our core belief is that this is an infinity dollar problem. 
because the net effect of taking somebody who is a net consumer of tax dollars, equipping them with a skill that creates them a net producer of tax dollars, there is no end to the economic benefit of that. And so we say, if the world says we'll spend $100 million on it, or the investment space says we'll spend $100 million on that, that's great. How much will you spend on it, government? How much will you spend on it, philanthropy? Because we'll just keep going. And if you know we find you know a new new capital source on Mars, we'll hit your ride with Elon. We'll figure it out. But that's how we got here. You know, it's interesting when we've had a couple of conversations in the context of moving the needle podcast around innovative capital models. We had, for example, Tracy Palangian here from Social Finance that's doing some really interesting things around social impact bonds. And I agree with you, Jake. I think that actually the direction that capital is going, both in terms of your traditional for-profit capital looking for mission-driven efforts and more on the philanthropic government side, looking at things that are actually going to generate a real ROI, return on investment. And the, the reason I like the Bitwise model is that it, it has got such an elegant profile. You're, you're solving for the infinity problem you just mentioned. You're getting to some great win-win-win for the corporate sector, getting great talent, for the community that's getting a chance to generate amazing jobs, and that it actually creates an economic engine for people who are investing in you. I've got a slightly different question as you guys are now in 10 different markets and you're starting to have a real impact, I think, in terms of our workforce landscape and how people are thinking about this, how do you see this playing out from a macro perspective? You guys are in the Central Valley of California. You're in many of the cities that you're in sort of flyover country that typically is not where you have high concentrations of corporate activity or talent development. And now you guys are changing that do you start to see corporations starting to follow your talent flows or do you see it having some kind of impact in terms of macroeconomics, macro demographics? I live in Durham, North Carolina, for example, and what you're seeing is you're seeing a net migration from cities like New York, Seattle, even Boulder to some of these underestimated cities. And I think you guys are engines on that. How do you see that playing out? I think there are a few different tracks that we're following. So there's there's definitely a, a macro level if we're thinking about city level change. We definitely have an impact on a location's GDP. And we think that if you do that enough times, then mathematically speaking, you have an impact on the nation's GDP. This is work that can scale to that level. The talent gap, the labor gap in the technology economy is so great that if we only just filled that, you would see that needle move all the way to the place where it's supposed to be. The other thing that we track sort of, it's, it's not quite micro, but sort of in this middle nebulous place is a lot of folks are looking to big tech to solve this problem, right? The, 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 not just diversity, equity, and belonging, but also to just sort of the investment in underestimated places. And the truth is that they're just never, ever going to. And so when you think about, what the macro level change ultimately is going to be, if you're just like playing the song all the way to the end, is that you, you set up a bitwise or bitwise-like in enough cities and those folks go and essentially infiltrate the school district and the hospital system and the logistics place on the corner and the startup. And that in aggregate will end up taking over and competing with what big tech is not doing. And so it is very much grassroots in that way. And it's only a matter of time. 
And then there's another piece too, which is, you know, Jake just told the story of Floyd Munoz and he, we have, you know, a thousand stories that are compelling. We have 10,000 stories that are compelling. Like the numbers are starting to get to this place where this shouldn't be surprising anymore. Like, you know, two co-founders from, you know, nowhere, California, raising a kajillion dollars, like the best version of the stories that that happened so many times that that shit's not surprising, that we are not the story anymore. And that is the direction that we're heading because of the Floyds and the folks who are, you know, all of his groomsmen, they're going to be the next version of that. And we can do that at scale as well. So a couple of different things to track on a macro level, but it's just not going to come from, you know, the heroes with the logos that we all recognize on the boxes that get delivered to your front door. Irma, informed by our previous conversations, the corporate sector, the role they play. And when you talk about standing up bitwise in multiple places, it feels like to me the work is converting regular customary IT procurement into economic mobility pathways. Do we ask companies to do anything other than provide us a fair opportunity to win business? That we then, the company then, the ecosystem then, converts into new pathways and new opportunities. That's the big win, right? That's the pinnacle. That is what will move mountains. But between here and there, we're also going to take advantage of their PR efforts, right? So if they're going to put a million dollars in El Paso, I'm going to go catch it. Right? I'm going to go run underneath <laughs> that ball and catch it. And similarly for other places. Now, those are not meaningful dollars for big tech, right? A million dollars here, a million dollars there. That is meaningful human impact, though, in a specific, if you concentrate that in a specific city. And we will take advantage of that for as long as they want to put out a PR statement. We will be certain to power the ability to continue to do that. Placemaking. One of the pillars of the uh, Bitwise ecosystem, the spaces that the company creates. They are unique spaces infused, infused with this ethos of no one belongs here more than you. That is compelling. I just love it and use it endlessly every day. No one belongs here more than you. How does that build narrative how does that create the kind of place where this work can be successful, Jake? Yeah, well, I don't need to remind a member of the West Virginia Mountaineer Athletic Football Hall of Fame, <laughs> Jonathan uh, uh, Holifeld, that uh, you know. Uh, uh, so there's the it was a, it was a Jerry Rice quote, right? Look good, feel good, play good. Um, we 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 tend to if you are I use the example of Stanford. Because I pick on them a lot because I, I wouldn't have sniffed admission there with a 10-foot pole as a kid. For the kids to get into Stanford, and, and God bless them, like you show up and that place is freaking gorgeous. You walk into Stanford and those people are dealing with confidence issues and, and mental and emotional health just the same as the rest of us. But if you're able to get past that, that place is telling you you're important. We're going to give you the best we've got to try and get you, use your period of time here to get you further because you are valuable to the world. 
if you are day one coming out of incarceration uh, or week one uh, uh, new to this country uh, and we were to get an objective read on what the environments we put you in are telling you, they would tell you, we want you to go back to jail or wherever you came from. That's what those environments tell you. And so what does everybody do? Everybody at Stanford says, I'm important. I'm going to be president. Everybody who comes out of jail goes back to jail because what your environment tells you about who you are has an extraordinary impact on what you choose to become. And so what we endeavor to do with the physical environments, these, these buildings that have been long overlooked in these underestimated cities, you say, well, how can we just make this special? Uh, and then how can we communicate to you that it is yours? Because, and so it means building a, a stadium seating theater on an old car ramp. It means a coffee shop that's that's not all the way hipster, but also it's not, you know, McDonald's in the rural community. Uh, uh, it, it means uh, thinking differently about how we make a basement arcade so that you can, you know, you can order a, a, a nice cocktail, but you can play centipede and hang out with your friends and not feel like you don't belong. It's, it's the, the mural that is of a young black woman or a, a dusty face field worker that just aren't the things that we normally put in the special places that all of a sudden begin to say, well, hold on, this might be for me. And then if you do that, have that effect on enough people, now there are other humans wandering around also who look like, have stories like you, and you've created this sense of belonging. All of that creates safety and worth that allows me now to access the unique intellect in your head and give you a tech skill that gets you into a tech job that let's not make any, like, let's not make bones about it, makes Irma and Jake and Goldman Sachs money. And it makes you money. And then you buy a house in this community and it makes the city money and it makes the county money. It just works. Uh, but it, that, that place component has such an extraordinary impact on all of us. And doesn't matter if it's your bedroom when you wake up in the morning or any of the environments we just talked about. You know, that's great. One of the things that uh, an organization called Forward Cities talks about that uh, that I helped to start and, and been part of has this whole idea about what makes up a robust and successful, equitable entrepreneurial ecosystem. And they talk about spaces that are abiding. So A-B-I-D-E, accessible belonging, inclusion, diversity, and equity. And I think you guys have nailed it exactly in terms of especially the accessibility and the belonging within the context of a DEI perspective. So I love that. You clearly are driving in a lot of innovative directions. I'm curious as to, as you guys keep iterating and keep innovating, where where are you going? What's next? Is it is it really trying to get to as many cities as possible? Is it continuing to iterate the model within the cities? Is it both and? Where do you see this going in terms of being an innovative engine that you are? The the first ten years, so we're coming up on our ten year anniversary here at Bitwise, and the first ten years has been a lot of innovation and reinvention and taking a thing that exists in a different format somewhere else and saying that's garbage that doesn't actually work for human beings rebuild it. 
And that is really doing a full decade on hard mode. Uh, and so when I think about what's next for Bitwise, it took a while for me because you get so you know lost in the day to day and you're pitching and you're giving a speech and you're whatever. It took a while for me to come back to what do I really want to do with this moment? Like, what do I really want for myself and for the community that I live in? And it is to straighten out the line in between where money exists and where who doesn't have it. Like that. I want to draw a straight line, as straight as possible, from where the money exists to the people who don't have it. Irma, that's your engineering background. <laughs> it, it's time to optimize. We could not <laughs> optimize too soon. That will ruin the system. Now it's time to optimize. And so the big effort, I think, we have things that scale now. We don't have things that repeat. So how do we create a repeatable system where you it's almost coin operated? You put a quarter in the in, in the top, you get a candy bar, bar out the bottom. Like that's what I want to get to. And that's a ton of work. And that is also, it's a cultural shift as well, because we've got, you know, nearly a thousand cowboys that work for us today. And that's an amazing, amazing team to assemble. It's a really different thing to ask them to stop being cowboys <laughs> and to do something that is repeatable. So there's a big, big shift for me in the effort. That's what I feel is next. And I because that's how I think we reach the maximum number of people. And it won't matter at all whether Jake and Irma are in these seats because the system itself will perpetuate. We're going to get to Jake in a second, but I do want to say that often what you find, especially at the scale you're talking about, is that you need to separate those two things out where you continue to have the innovation engine and you've got the team that can really get to that coin-operated efficiencies uh, that are so critical to be able to create that repeatable process. But Jake, where would you, anything to build on what Irma is talking about? No, I think, I mean, it, it's it's similar. I think I've heard Irma say it before is the redistribution of wealth. And I know that everybody gets all uptight around, you know, that's uh, a socialist idea. When, no, it's 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 really not. Uh, it is in our context squarely a capitalist idea that we're endeavoring with the you know greatest capitalist tools uh, um, the you know the world has yet to invent. So I, I think for me the the primary motivating factor are the like city level sort of redemption stories. The the uh, the when we began bitwise. Irma and I, I think both agree, right? Her primary lens was tech. My primary tool was actually, I was deeply interested in this idea of downtown revitalization, um, which I think, you know, fundamentally is, you know, the, the redemption of physical space in a city for beneficial use, you know. And so now we fast forward, you see the ability to literally change the face and function of a city and its heart. And and just like I described a moment ago on, on spaces and the impact they can have, now we're talking at a macro level, the way a city thinks about itself. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fun from a boosterism standpoint, but then a layer deeper, if we have indeed used that to create inclusion, that changes who thinks they can run for city council. Uh, it changes who controls the vast quantum of the dollars. It changes who's making the design decisions and who the coffee shop is designed for. And, and that's all really exciting to me. And, and, you know, if I was to hope for something a, a decade from now, be that you could go on a, a road trip to all of these bitwise cities and hold up a before and after picture, and they do look wildly different. You know, Jake, I'll... Um offer this for consideration. 
I'm not sure we're engaged in redistribution. And my point is this, redistribution implies a fixed amount, implies. Mm. Just what we've been talking about, everything we're doing adds, builds. It makes money for, for the individual, for the investor, for the government. Everyone does better under the scenario that we envision. So I only mildly challenge that redistribution because it's not a fixed pie. We're exponentially helping exponentially grow that pie. I'll offer that for CEO consideration. Well, this is why my podcast got canceled and yours is top. That's right. Top of the charts. We need you. We need to say that again. I didn't hear you, Jake. It's all, it's all, it's all about inclusive competitiveness, Jake, all about inclusive competitiveness. It's getting each of these cities to be more competitive. And it really is by being able to take that one hand tied behind your back and taking that hand out and being able to fight with both hands uh, by being able to harness the true value of the talent that's there and create that economic engine uh, that you were just talking about, Jonathan. I think that's exactly right. The, The growing of the pie, this is not competing for the crumbs. So, Jonathan, I think we're getting close to time, so it's now time to turn our attention to asking uh, a couple of more fun questions, get to a little bit into the personal side of things. We're going to kick it off with you, Irma. You know, one of the things we love to hear is, is what are the things that you're reading or you're listening to or you're learning that uh, is really expanding the way you're thinking about things? And then what is the music that you really like to get oh. down to? Well, um, well, I basically only read things that Jake tells me to read these days. He's um, he's not enough. He's got a whole list. It's really consuming a lot of my time, if I'm being honest. I want to get that list. You know, we could get that list and put it on our website. It'd be great. Uh, I'm. I think you just joined his book club. (laughs) He wanted nothing more than for that to happen. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, That's right. Yeah, I'm actually one of the things I'm working on right now is I, I have decided to improve my Spanish. I speak Spanish like a, a child would speak Spanish, and I have decided that I'm going to speak Spanish as well as I speak English. And uh, that is opening up a, a lot of like things that you probably wouldn't notice uh, like as a, as a child. Like one of the linguistic differences that I have observed recently is like, you know, in English, you would say like, I am hungry. It's an identifying uh, proposition. And in Spanish, you would say, I have hunger. Um, and those are different. It's a, a state of being, not a being. And uh, so I'm having a lot of fun with like noticing those types of things. And it feels like a, a neat moment in time now that I have just more awareness of myself to work on something like that, that I would not have picked up when I was, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old. And then music wise, you can never go wrong with Brandy Carlisle. I mean, honestly, why would you even try to compete? Jake, whatever you're going to say about the things you're listening to, they're wrong. <laughs> apparently apparently so so you guys irma's covered it for both of us (laughs) i i I assume that there's a similar question coming my Mm -hmm. way and it's i i am depending on your your friend preferences i'm either an extraordinary friend or a very annoying friend and i say that because i am the sort of so i i've never been a big reader and then this year when when i sort of with some with my wife initially and then with some friends started, you know, just reading a bunch. I'd probably read five books in my whole life. Uh, and I've, I'm coming up on 20 for the year. But I'm the guy 
who wanders around acting like he invented reading. Um, uh, and so, do you know how to read? Because I, I could, I have some stuff for you. And, and, and so, if you are like, let me enjoy this guy's new enthusiasm, you're going to love me. If you are like, bro, everybody knows how to read. I'm going to be very annoying. Irma falls into the bro, everybody knows how to read category. But reading has been, it's, it's probably been one of the greatest joys of this year for me. I do feel like a, you, like a, like a, like, you know, new to the party, just really enjoying the exploration. And for me, it has been, I couldn't be less interested in business books. Um, I'm really, really loving fiction. Uh, favorite things I've read this year. One is a recommendation from Ir Irma, Project Hail Mary by so Andy Weir. Uh, really, really great book. I know that's sort of top of the charts. I, I really liked Homegoing by Jan Nagasi. I really, I have a tattoo on my body uh, from a book called Cloud Cuckoo Land. My brother and I got matching tattoos from that book. And then right now I'm reading one I really like called American Dirt. Um, I will say that the, the theme lines that you want, if you wander through what I've read this year, some of it doesn't fit, but I am really, really enjoying immigrant journeys. They're, they're, deeply sort of disturbing and tragic and all of that. But there is a triumph and a beauty and a grit that is, I think, ties out directly to, to what, um, you know, what we're doing here a bit wise. Um, in terms of music, I, I'm all over the map. I, I, I really like Boney Bear. Uh, I do enjoy Brandy Carlisle. I think the album that, that is relatively recent that I enjoy is by a band called King's Kaleidoscope uh, called Baptism. Their new album is pretty weird. And I am, uh, I'm really enjoying it. That was Jake Sobral and Irma Ogwin Jr. And again, you can find them at bitwiseindustries.com. Jonathan and I would again like to thank Irma and Jake for coming on our show today and for what they're doing to make cities stronger. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews. And cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors. Live Oak Bank, and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading-edge changemakers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle-moving shit. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes, but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century, in many ways, served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. 
Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities, Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.